Hi everyone. As we are on our season break, we thought we'd bring you one of our most listened to episodes. I've spent over 40 episodes either interviewing guests or chatting to live in our Real Talk segments, but funnily enough, our most listened to episode is actually my story, my raw, imperfect journey. This convo will give you a glimpse into my life pre-kids, my relationship failures, and my darkest moments, experiencing both pre- and postnatal depression. During the episode, I do mention Mum Life. The Mum Life podcast was what we used to be called before we transitioned to parenthood. All right, let's get into the conversation. Prior to having children, I had that mask on. I hoped that to the world, everything seems under control, but inside I really had a lot of vulnerabilities. Certainly motherhood and the experiences I had with prenatal depression and emotions going everywhere and the challenges in my relationship and all of that in between has just made me realize that life's too short and you've got to speak the truth and it's okay to be vulnerable. And in fact, that's what people connect to. I have my sister today, Michelle, on the podcast with us, and um, we'll be talking a little bit about my motherhood journey. So, Michelle, welcome. Thanks so much. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to dive into your motherhood journey and everything you've been through. It is one hell of a story. So excited (laughs) for all the amazing women listening to hear it all. So talk to us a little bit about who Leonie was pre-babies. Sure. So. I guess what comes to mind is work hard, play hard. And I, I certainly don't say that lightly. So I'm, um, I do, I did in particular live life with great intensity. So when I worked, it's like I worked like my life depended on it. And I often didn't have an off switch. So I think, look, that probably comes from my upbringing. Often we do mirror what, you know, the environment in which we were brought up. So our parents were very hard workers and, That's probably an understatement, to be honest. With our dad, he came from a village in Africa. They had next to nothing. I remember he'd tell us stories about the fact that, you know, they'd have three meals a day, but, you know, once a week they had a bowl of rice. And that bowl of rice, you ate every single grain of rice and it was considered an absolute luxury So to have that. So you can only imagine, you know, that that sort of the level of hardship in which he under, uh, underwent as a child. He was obviously fortunate enough to be to get a scholarship to a private school and then essentially that was his ticket out of the country after having been accepted to a number of universities. So, you know, and his whole mission was to make his family proud and to really build a life for him himself outside of the that you know the village community in which he was brought up in so it's amazing the extreme that he experienced in his life as far as sort of um you know wealth and financial stability. You know, our mum came from a working class Greek family, similarly a family that was trying to build something for themselves and worked extremely hard um, in order to do that. So I think, you know, my parents are certainly fighters. Even to be together, they had to fight a lot of the norms. I mean, certainly a a black man with a, a white woman in the 80s was completely inappropriate socially. So to have to overcome all of these challenges throughout their lives lives. And then having me, I guess, as the oldest daughter, when they finally did migrate um, to Australia, and that's where I was brought up, 
I certainly felt the intensity of that that sort of work ethic and that sort of fighter mentality. So therefore, it was really in my blood to also, you know, work as hard as I could. And if it was during my childhood years, then that was to really do my very best at school. Or, you know, later on in life, it was to really try and excel at my career. And that's where that stems from. It's been a very big part of who I am. So, work hard and um, and certainly to balance that out, play hard. So, you know, I was, you know, just a kid that grew up in a Melbourne suburb um, and did everything else that all the other kids did, but probably did it to the extreme. So, um, you know, I love to be social. I love, you know, my friends are a huge part of my life. But to be honest, and particularly in my early 20s, because I lived with such intensity and, you know, quite frankly, you know, I'm very highly anxious, high functioning person, type A personality. You know, I endure a lot of stress just in my everyday life, you know, and I put a lot of pressure on myself in order to blank out the, you know, the negative chat. Socially, being able to have a drink and party meant that I was able to kind of just zone out from all that anxiety and just be present in the moment. So whether that's present on the dance floor with my girlfriends or you know, present in the conversation I was having at the party. So certainly parting was probably the way in which I balanced out that lot. Yeah. So it was quite a, quite an intense lifestyle to live. (laughs) Oh yes. Intense it was. And (laughs) I think I'd, I'd love to know kind of, you know, you, you spoke a lot about our parents and our upbringing and the, in the intensity you felt, I think, I'd love to know that what were the kind of implications of that lifestyle? So, you know, you said you'd work so hard and then then you'd help, you'd go out and party till the sun, you know, came up. What did that mean for you in your in your 20s? When you live with such great intensity and you almost don't have a huge amount of downtime, eventually your body can't take it anymore. So I certainly thought I was invincible. So, you know, for example, I remember I was working as a management consultant at a major company in this in the city. At the same time, I decided to do a course in in accounting, even though I didn't even really want to do it, but I figured oh, I may as well add that to the list. I also was uh, planning a black tie charity ball to raise money for breast cancer. I was also at the same time training for a half marathon and living my party escapade, you know, style life. So this was all happening at the one time. And so my day would look like this. I'd essentially wake up at 4am. I would study for an hour. I would then do my charity ball stuff for another hour. I would then go for a run for another hour to train for that half marathon. Then I'd get myself organized, go to work. I would often work at a client's office till midnight, one o'clock in the morning, get home, wake up at 4am, do it all over again. Weekend would come. It was time to party, balance it all out. You know, I just want to be present in the moment. Let's, you know, dance to some beats on the dance floor, happy days. So it wasn't as though I was catching up on a lot of rest then either. And then I'd launch straight into Monday Uh, and everything I felt I wanted to do it to the nth degree. So I was extremely committed to all of these different things that I had in my life. Um, And that led to adrenal fatigue. It also led to me realizing that I'd actually had glandular fever, but I hadn't actually realized it at the time when I did have it, but I did test positive for it um, at a later date. Uh, I had digestive issues. You know, I think 
just holding so much anxiety and stress around everything that I did and wanting to be, I guess, perfect at everything, you know, eventually, you know, your body will give up. And on top of that, I just had that constant anxiety uh, sitting at the back of my mind, which I do believe I masked all of this quite well, because for me, I like to come across as though everything is under control and I've got this, but it is difficult to have that many balls in the air and not eventually, um, you know, drop a couple. And essentially what dropped was my, my physical health, um, at the time. Why do you think we push ourselves to the limit? Yeah, I think there's often it, from my perspective, it was the external validation, to be quite honest. Uh, I grew up, as I said, with our parents, you know, very focused, they were, they were very focused on their career and really trying to get some, you know, wealth together for our family. Um, and that looked like for them, that was starting a property development business um, from, from nothing. And so um, there was some really tough years at the start um, with money and all of that. So I grew up in that environment and I felt as though the one thing I could do to potentially make my parents' life easier was to be excellent at what I, you know, what I had on my plate. So if that was school, to be excellent at school. And often, you know, they would give me love and affirmation when I did get an A at school or, you know, when I did win that, you know, race that I ran in athletics. So then it almost starts feeling a little bit like, conditional love versus unconditional. So all of a sudden it's, oh, I can, if I achieve, then I'm going to get love in return from the people that I need it from the most, which is my folks. And then later on in life, it's, oh, if I achieve, then I've got other people looking at me going, wow, like amazing. How is she running a charity, you know, to raise money? Meanwhile, she's got a job and she's this and she's on the dance floor. And how is she doing all of that? Amazing. And so, um, it almost starts puffing you up a bit and puffing up your ego. And so, yeah, I think it was just that external validation, which is a really big part of the work I'm doing uh, on myself to, to just start dialing back from that and realizing that ultimately it's, you've got to feel validated in yourself first and foremost. You know, I think it can be so easy to get caught up in the external validation. Even in today's age, social media, everyone's posting their new car and their Mm -hmm. house and their engagements. You know, Mm -hmm. we can feel so small and Mm -hmm. just so much like we're just not worthy. You know, talk to us a little bit about the time that you felt the least worthy. So that would definitely have been towards the back end of a relationship that I had. So um, talking about that social media, the highlight reel and all of that, I certainly had a blueprint for my life in which I, you know, I had the boxes to tick. So, and I lived with by that blueprint. So I always was very strategic in knowing that what my next step would be. So whether that was for my career, I kind of knew, okay, I want to climb that corporate ladder. So my next step is 
you know, to get to X. So I'm going to work my ass off to get there. Or even, you know, from when I was little, you know, you're at school and you want to get to the uni and then you get, want to get the job. And so it's all, it was all sort of nicely planned out for me in a way. And if I didn't meet those expectations, I was very hard on myself. So the time in which I felt (laughs) the most unworthy was when my blueprint didn't go to plan. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, Tony Roberts says that the blueprint can be the cause of the most suffering um, that you experience because, you know, you're the one that sets it, but you're the one that's trying to reach it. And if you don't have a little bit of flexibility in that blueprint, you're likely to to sort of um, experience suffering. So that's certainly what happened to me. So it's a little bit of a story, but essentially I, I met a, a guy and I decided to move interstate to Sydney to be with that person. And he ticked every single one of my superficial boxes. So, you know, he had the job, he was good looking, he had the, you know, lifestyle. He also worked hard and played hard. So that was tick. And I could really, this is the one relationship where I thought, you know what, this could be it. It was, you know, when I first, we first met, it just felt like such a powerful soul connection where I was just like, this is my person. You know, I could see our life together and it was exactly what I wanted um, or what I thought I wanted at the time. And so basically (laughs) it ended up being far from what I uh, had envisioned in my head. (laughs) What I struggled with the most was I was with the person that I thought I was meant to be with. We looked good together. We had, you know, with the power couple, we lived in the beautiful apartment in Potts Point in Sydney. We we were out at restaurants and bars and clubs and, you know, and I, and I certainly felt as though I was living the life that I had I'd always wanted to live and I'd found my person. But there was, I guess, upon reflecting on us breaking up, when I look back, it probably took me a year to really realize this. I realized that I was really not happy with myself inside. And ultimately I I did feel the most unworthy when this person ended up breaking up with me. And um, I guess it was just such a burst to my confidence, to my ego, to everything. And I felt completely out of control by that decision that was made. So yeah, that, that relationship was certainly a big learning curve for me. I think so many of the ladies listening could will resonate and and just think back to a time where they thought, oh, I should just live by my blueprint or, you know, I think it just wakes us up, situations and experiences like that. So we really appreciate you sharing that with us. So I guess I want to kind of dive a bit deeper into the social pressures. So, you know, it's it's just so easy. Like I experience this in my life where I'm just like, oh my goodness, I'm not meeting all these expectations and I just, I'm just not good enough. And, you know, especially as you headed into your, I guess your 30s, your late, your late 20s, 30s, you know, what how did that play out for you? And and kind of what was the result? of that relationship, that failed relationship. Yeah. So essentially it was to some extent me considering the social pressures um, in, and that then determined how hard and fast I, I fell for this particular person. So I was, you know, 27, 28 at the time. Socially, I thought, okay, the next relationship will probably be the one I'm heading toward, you know, I'm late twenties. Let's get serious now. And so 
for that reason, I dived in headfirst and also was just completely obsessed with the facade of what I thought this person was and the lifestyle that we would have together. But certainly, like if I'd met him at 22, there's no way I would have, you know, moved cities within, you know, weeks of knowing the person. Uh, you know, when we first met, we didn't spend, I mean, he lived in, a, uh, I lived in Melbourne, he lived in Sydney. Every weekend, one of us was flying back and forth, seeing each other. We'd invested so much time and effort it, we wouldn't have done that at 22. So, you know, certainly I felt that pressure. We, I moved to Sydney, we moved in together. I felt like, great, I'm already envisioning myself being this person's wife. Like, you know, I'm in my late twenties. This is it for me. They're perfect. It's great. And for that reason, I probably missed a lot of the warning signs that came with that relationship. And it's not necessarily that that person was a bad person by any means, that that he's a lovely person. It was just more that I was trying to fit a square peg in a round hole because my blueprint dictated that the next step would be next relationship, meet the guy, have the kids by 30, you know, keep going, keep ticking the things off the, the list of things to do before you die in the right sequence. So yes, certainly uh, the society pressure definitely got to me at that point. And I've felt it a number of times um, since then as well. How can we navigate that societal pressure and not fall victim to it? I mean, I think it's very easy for me to say, well, you know, just block out the noise. But when you're in one of those, when you're in a situation where, for example, when I I ended up breaking up with this, well, he broke up with me, the guy from Sydney. Um, And, you know, I lived my best single life for a little while there in Sydney. And I came back to Melbourne and I was 29. I came back and all of my friends, most of them were in long-term relationships, either engaged, you know, I was going on Facebook and Instagram and every other person had engagement rings up and look at my perfect life. And, you know, I'm so lucky I've met my soulmate and I'm there you know, at the time I was at, back in my, moved back into my parents' place as I was trying to figure out my next move after having not been in Melbourne for a couple of years. You know, I'm back at my parents' place feeling like I'm 16 again, got my mum saying, will you be home for dinner tonight? And I'm there, you know, thinking, God, what happened? Like everything was so, you know, you know, looking back a couple of years, I thought, you know, by now I probably even have kids. Like what is going on? I'm just back to, you know, it just felt like... Like I'd taken a million steps back again because of the society pressure. If I'd gone back and I was 23, of course I wouldn't feel that way. So I've been there and I know what that really feels like. And, and, and I did feel worthless. I felt like an absolute failure that I'd had this relationship that I couldn't manage to keep it together so that we could get married and we could have the kids and it was all my fault. And then I come back to Melbourne feeling as though, you know, where to from here and how the hell am I going to meet my soulmate now when it seems as though all these other people, you know, are there even any single men left? Like that was sort of my negative train of thought. So it is, it's easy for someone to say, oh, you know, at the time, if they'd said to me, it's all right, Leonie, just block out the noise. Well, I would have been like, well, that's not going to work for me. Thank you very much. So I don't know if there's an easy fix, but I think for me at the time, one thing that really helped was just, you know, leaning on my friends. And for me, I'm a social person. So just, you know, keeping myself preoccupied and going out to restaurants and doing the things that I love. And, um, and I guess that helped to some extent. I'm just so glad and that you've talked about all of this and that we've gone there and, and really 
understood it all. I think, you know, so many of us can get so caught up and about this blueprint and about where we should be and about everything we should have achieved before 30. And it just seems, it sounds ridiculous when you really think about it, but at the same time, it's a serious pressure that we put on ourselves. So I guess I want to now talk about, you know, how it ended up panning out. I mean, now you've got two beautiful boys who I just cannot get enough of. And, you know, you've got a loving husband, Jules, and he's a legend. You know, that it's only been a couple of years since that really low point. You know, how did you get yourself out of that low point? Yeah. I mean, look, it's so funny and it's so amazing how quickly things can change. And, um, I mean, as I said, I was 29 single living with my parents back in Melbourne, feeling like a failure. And, uh, you know, by 31, I was engaged with a child. So, Mm. uh, in my situation, I actually ended up back with a boyfriend, my very first boyfriend. Um, I, we got together when I was 20, we dated for four years and And then we just both felt we had a lot of growing up to do. So off we went, you know, living in different cities and countries. And But we always sort of kept in touch and it was nice to sort of feel as though we could lean on each other, mainly during sort of times of hardship. I would generally send him out a text or he would do the same for me. And anyway, we ended up we continue to bump into each other in my late twenties. So I'm in Sydney. He's randomly at the same bar as me. He lives in Melbourne, but he just happened to be in Sydney for work. And and then I, I moved back to Melbourne back at my parents' house. I'm out and about on the town and I just kept bumping into him. And to the point where his friends were like, is she like following you? And my friends were like, is he following you? Like, how do we keep seeing Jules everywhere we go? (laughs) And it's obviously we run in very similar social circles and like, you know, similar venues, et cetera. So uh, we actually decided that we would deliberately run into each other and we decided we would go for dinner. And so one dinner turned into two dinners, which turned into multiple dinners, which turned into us essentially moving in together. I think what we realized was that growing, that time that we allowed to sort of grow up individually really made us realize, I guess, you know, what was important to us. I know certainly for myself, uh, when I was with Jules, given he was my first boyfriend, I didn't know any different. So I thought everyone treated you, you know, everyone made you dinner or every, you know, like those little things that he did for me, I thought that was just completely normal. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go out and, you know, be with different guys and sort of just get get a bit more experience in this whole dating game. And I put together my little superficial list of the things that I thought I wanted. So person needs to have this kind of job or needs to enjoy, you know, wine and, you know, I have my, like, and, and it really wasn't down to the actual values, it was more superficial. So actually after breaking up with that ex of mine with, that was a really difficult relationship. Uh, I spoke to a psychologist and she said to me, and I was just so lost because I was like, I don't understand. He ticked all of the boxes. So where do I go to from here? And she said to me, have you ever thought about how the person, how you want to feel when you're with that person, that could be your new, they could be your new boxes. And she said, think about three feelings you want to feel when you're after, when you're with a person or once you've left that person and go with that. So my feelings were respect, playfulness, and passion. 
And so from then on, when I'd meet someone, uh, you know, go on a date with someone, if I I didn't really feel they were ticking one of those boxes, I knew it was probably not going to be a long-term thing. And what blew my mind was that when I came back to Melbourne and, and, and went for dinner with Jules, I walked away from that conversation going, wow, like I feel like he's ticking those three boxes and then we'd meet again and I'd feel playful and I'd feel passion and I'd feel respect for him and what he's done with his life and where he's heading. And and all of a sudden I was like, wow, I really think there's something here. And so I thought that was such a fantastic tip. And because we'd set a foundation, we had the foundation of our previous relationship, uh, things moved relatively quickly for us. But I mean, I've even noticed it with other girlfriends who were single at 30 and within two, three years, you know, they've got kids and it's all happening. I think at that age, you know what you're looking for. And so you just cut the, you cut through the bullshit pretty quickly. And um, so, yes, I had the foundation with Jules of having the background and understanding who he was. And so he moves quickly, but I don't think that necessarily has to be the case either. So it's just being 30 and knowing what you want and knowing who you are. Ah. Being 30, I just feel like it's such a great age. I feel like a lot happens and, I mean, it's just so fascinating to hear your journey and how it was for you. So let's talk about babies, you know. Let's talk about motherhood. This podcast is all about mum life. So, you know, when did you fall pregnant and, and what was pregnancy life like for you? So I actually fell pregnant while we were engaged and um, what that meant was we actually, we actually had Noah, our firstborn, he was seven months at our wedding, which was really lovely. I was, that was a little bit of a surprise, um, falling pregnant while we were engaged, but also a pleasant one. But I was shocked at how much pregnancy completely rocked me emotionally and physically. So I fell pregnant and I I just felt like I hadn't factored that in to my blueprint at that time. I knew I wanted to be pregnant and potentially after the wedding, but so that threw me first of all. And obviously, you know, I was grateful, but just the fact that it caught me a little bit off guard, um, what then happened was I experienced extreme overwhelm. I felt as though I wasn't prepared. I didn't know anything about kids. Not a lot of my close friends had kids. I'd never really spent much time with them. I didn't know what you had to buy. I didn't know what they were like. And all of a sudden I just, my anxiety just rose um, I'd hear kids, you know, calling out on the street or, you know, would be out and about and I'd hear a kid squeal. And I literally, my heart would stop. Cause I would think, my God, like, what if my baby just like cries all the time? And uh, you know, how am I meant to know what to do? And I don't want to read all those pregnancy books and the parenting books. And that's giving me anxiety as well. And, you know, we go into baby bunting and I just didn't even know what the difference between, you know, a carrier and a, you know, pram was like, it was just, everything was just so overwhelming. And so what that meant for me was that ultimately, um, along with feeling exhausted, along with feeling highly emotional and, and, and not being able to operate at my optimum, which for me is a big thing. I I always like to feel like I can operate at, you know, and achieve 110%, which isn't realistic from (laughs) what I've realized. Perfection is bullshit, but, um, (laughs) I certainly felt, um, just like, I, I just, I felt off. And so for that reason, what ended up happening was I was diagnosed with prenatal depression. 
you know, I think it's it's so interesting that even post the wedding or, you know, post-engagement where you actually had the man, you finally found the man and, and all of that and it felt right. And it's funny that that blueprint still sticks with us, that sometimes, you know, it does flood through and I think it almost almost just makes it so much more real and, you know, you're not going to change completely because of everything you've gone through, but you you will you will still grow. So, I mean, talk to us about what depression feels like. You know, I think so many women go through it. It's something that those of us who haven't had babies yet fear it. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I guess for me with the prenatal, I um, I guess the best way to explain it was I would wake up in the morning and I would kind of be filled with dread and then I would feel guilty that I was filled with dread because who am I to be feeling not completely elated that I am pregnant? You know, everyone, you know, so many people want this and and some people have, you know, really challenging journeys just to fall pregnant. So, Leonie, who the hell are you to not be skipping out of bed in the morning and being 100% grateful? So that was that guilt factor. Then at the same time, I also felt numb to any positive emotions. I just felt like it was literally like, how am I going to get through today? Survival. I need to think about just doing one thing and then the next and then the next and just getting stuff done. But it's almost as though in my head, I wasn't a hundred percent present to what I was doing. You know, on top of that, I felt as though I had to put a mask on to show everyone from particularly from a work perspective that I had my shit together. It's all good. So you're feeling numb inside. You're almost thinking, I really don't care if I'm here on this earth right now, or if I'm not, I I just don't care. Like, what is the point of all of this? Sometimes you can go down a little bit of a rabbit hole um, and then feel guilty for going down that rabbit hole. And it's just an absolute mess. So the other thing for me is I'm not a crier or anything like that. I I, I actually am told that I need to show my emotions a little bit more. (laughs) I know even for this podcast, (laughs) you said to me, you've got to be real, Leonie, don't give us the mask. I want the real stuff. Uh, so that's a conscious effort for me. But when I was um, experiencing prenatal, I would have tears streaming down my face at times, but I, it's almost like there was no emotion behind it, which is a really scary thing. And I can only imagine from Jules's perspective to witness that, um, to witness his partner, who's usually quite high energy, high functioning, high intensity in everything that she does, to almost feel as though the air's the air has completely come out of the tires, and she's walking around like a zombie, getting stuff done, but not even present to what she's doing, and then crying, but not even showing a huge amount of emotion while crying, and not able to articulate what was wrong. I can only imagine from his perspective how terrifying that would have been. What did Jules do? You know, what happened then? So he encouraged me to say sort of because I wasn't doing much other than my job, that's all I could sort of manage to do to get myself through the day. As far as so that the work hard piece was still going strong, probably with a little less intensity, but I certainly was still getting things done. The play hard piece had just completely fallen to shatters. I just didn't have any energy to 
to even catch up with a friend for a coffee sort of thing. I'd rather just be in bed and put on Netflix. And so he really encouraged me to do the things that I love, which is going for a coffee with my girlfriend or, you know, going for a walk or, you know, going for dinner with him. And so, but on top of that, I think he felt as though he wasn't fully equipped to deal with that on his own or to deal with sort of how I was feeling. So I was seeing a psychologist at the time and he actually suggested that he come to one of the sessions that I had because he felt that maybe if he could also articulate what he was experiencing, the psych would be able to provide us, you know, maybe with some helpful tips for both of us. Cause obviously he was struggling to some extent as well, seeing how flat I was. So certainly that psychology session um, that we had, that was, yeah, that was pretty confronting. Um, but I think extremely worth it. You know, looking back on that now, you know, what advice would you give to our, you know, to the ladies listening around dealing with your, like this thing with your partner watching you go such through such tough times, you know, like how did you guys come back from that? How did Jules end up managing that? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's devastating. It's, you know, it's mm. tough. Oh, absolutely. And I couldn't appreciate how much it was impacting him at the time because I couldn't even appreciate how much it was impacting me because I just felt as though, I was just surviving. And it's almost like I wasn't even overthinking it. I just was feeling so, um, so over myself, completely over myself. Like what is wrong with you, Leonie, that you're not happy, you know, get on with it. But then at the same time, I can't get on with it. I'm just so, yeah, I can't snap out of this. I'm so frustrated. And so, um, for me, the, you know, be, seeing the psychologist with Jules, that one session was extremely helpful. I mean, I just remember we were sitting in the, in the room and I'd mentioned to her, obviously I'd been seeing her once a week actually during my pregnancy. Cause I was just, I really needed the support. And so I'm sitting there and Jules is next to me. And that in itself felt so foreign to me. Cause I'm like, whoa, I can't believe he's like here. And she actually asked him point blank. So tell me what has your experience been? And he starts talking and then he starts getting a bit emotional. And I just remember thinking, looking over at him, and usually I'm a very empathetic person. So if I saw him get emotional, let's say in a normal circumstance, I probably would have gotten quite emotional too. But in the zone that I was in, I looked at him and I just felt nothing. As in, I felt no empathy whatsoever for what he was going through. I just thought, you know what, I just... I'm, I'm here. You wanted me to be here. And then after this, I just want to go home and sit, lie in bed and watch my Netflix and just zone out. And then tomorrow I'll just do what I have to do then. And I'm just getting through the day, you know, minute by minute. So I'm sure that in itself was quite confronting and for him to sort of be talking and explaining and for the psychologist to be, you know, providing recommendations and asking how I was feeling. And for me to just kind of be almost zoned out to what was happening. I, you know, I can only imagine how confronting that would have been. Uh, and I look back now and I just think, I can't believe that was me. It's almost like you're in a bit of a trance, like, it's like an alternate universe sometimes, but, um, yeah. So look, I think what supported us was the fact that he lent on a lot of, you know, I'm sure of several close friends. We didn't make it a secret that I was struggling. I know I lent on 
yourself, Michelle, my other sister, Rachel, you know, a couple of close girlfriends as well. We even informed my parents that, you know, I was struggling at the time. Jules lent on his network too. And we just uh, tried to take each day uh, as it came. And as I said, he encouraged me to, 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 you know, for example, he knew, he knew that I loved being out and about. So we would factor in a date night every once every, you know, fortnight. And even if it was just at the local Thai place around the corner, but we were out. And even if I didn't really want to be there, I knew I had to do that for our relationship. And it's amazing that sometimes when you do drag yourself out of bed or you do do something that you don't necessarily want to do, but you do it for the other person, that in the moment, i.e. sitting at that Thai restaurant looking over at Jules, I thought, you know what, I'm grateful to be here. I needed this. So sometimes just listening to that person and, and making the effort can ultimately sort of heal you to some extent as well. How do you feel like the pregnancy as a whole and that experience has healed you as a person? It certainly made me realise that I am so human. <laughs> so, and, and I say that not because I thought I was, you know, superhuman or anything like that, but I... I um, I thought that that intensity in which I lived life with that huge amount of drive with everything from the parting to to my career and all of that in between, I thought that that would never end. Like I was just a highly intense, full-on person. And so to go to the other extreme and and feel as though you just don't even care about the outcome anymore, you don't even need the external validation, you just, you just want to get through the day, to have experienced that. And certainly I knew I'd heard about, you know, depression and things like that and how it impacts people, but you just... And I, I thought, oh, well, you know, so unfortunate that that does occur, but I, I could never imagine that happening to me. I, I'm so like A-type personality driven. I don't have time to be depressed. <laughs> so when it does, you know, happen to you, it it's such a shock to the system. And to some extent, it really grounded me. I look back on that and I think, wow, I was able to come out of that and and sort of find a happy medium in the way in which I'm living my life now. I think that also came with having children as well. It certainly came with having children. And all of a sudden I couldn't be completely selfish and be out till six in the morning and then, you know, uh, have dumplings the next day and lie in bed. And, you know, now I'm I'm responsible for people. So um, I think that that experience in itself is also grounding. But yeah, I think it certainly, it brought me, I scaled back a little on that intensity given that experience. So talk to us a little bit about Noah and that first kind of when he came into the world and and kind of your experience after that. Yeah, so I obviously uh, really struggled throughout the pregnancy. It was amazing though as soon as I gave birth to Noah, it's almost like this weight had just lifted and I think it was because Anxiety is sort of fearing the future and always thinking about the future and how am I going to make sure it's perfect and how do I control, you know, every aspect. At least that's how I experience it. So thinking about what a child would be like was terrifying me. And as soon as Noah came into the world, I I realized that there's no more thinking about what it would be like. He's here now, so I can now 
you know, put things into action and I, I just have to get on with it. And so I think just that in itself was actually a, a massive relief for me. Um, I just remember it so distinctly, that feeling as though literally after giving birth, this weight had lifted. And, you know, my initial reaction to Noah being born was, first of all, I thought it was the most bizarre thing ever. So <laughs> the obstetrician was like, here is your son. And I look at I look at him, I'm still a bit high on the gas as well that they give you to <laughs> ease the pain. So I'm a little bit like tripping out. <laughs> I see this baby. And then um, and then I just felt like I cannot believe this child has just come out of me. I feel as though they've literally just gone to the room next door, grabbed a kid, brought him in and gone, here is your child. I just, it just blew my mind, you know, human nature and how things happen. So the other thing I experienced though, which was a bit of a surprise to me, was I thought that I'd have this immediate love connection towards my child. And don't get me wrong, I was certainly, you know, there was love there, but that grew immensely over the weeks and months ahead. So initially I was probably more nervous and wanting to make sure that I, I could sort of do the best job I could for this little one. And I was trying to work out all the nuances when it comes to a newborn that I, I didn't completely, you know, I wasn't utterly love at first sight, certainly, as I said, that grew. And now I understand what, you know, having children is the most, it's amazing. And and you think you love someone and then you see your child and you get to know your child and that love is just so much more intense. So I certainly experienced it at a later date, but I wonder if that's something that I'm not sure that a lot of people talk about that. And certainly if you look on Instagram and that, and often people will put up photos of the birth and the mum's holding the baby and my darling and all of this. And so my thought was, oh, wow, like initial, initial immense love. Um, And I don't think that happens for everyone. Yeah, we really appreciate you being so candid about that. I think it's so true. Once again, it's how things are perceived or how we perceive them isn't always the reality of it. And so I think that's it's just so great to hear and, and just and just good to know. So I guess talk to us a little bit about what it meant for when Noah came home. And then I kind of want to dive into where your decision to start this, this podcast came from. You had Noah and, and Noah came home and then Charlie was born not long after and, and then this came along. So talk to us a little bit about the aftermath of Noah, Charlie, and then the podcast. So I felt as though I was very ill-prepared prepared for motherhood. Not that you can really prepare yourself, but I think because I didn't have a lot of friends, as I said, that had children and I hadn't been around children and all I'd really seen was, you know, posts on social media of like how glorious motherhood looks like. I think I, I knew it would be hard, but I had no real concept of what was involved in, in being a mother. And so, I mean, certainly when I, you know, the initial moments of having a child and, you know, the, the weeks and months ahead when you're having the visitors come and, you know, and everyone's so elated and, you know, it's such an exciting time when that sort of wears off and then the day-to-day kicks in and then you're experiencing things like, you know, complete fatigue and, you know, you don't know, I really struggled with my identity and who I am now that I'm a mother, you know, your relationship gets put under uh, pressure with just having had no sleep and, you know, having someone else to look after. And in my case, now I've got two people to look after, um, two, two of my sons. So, 
there's just so much that comes with having children that I just didn't really know about or appreciate. And I wondered that if there was, you know, potentially a podcast out there that spoke about the stuff that often people don't speak about, I thought, would, would that have helped me? So ultimately what why I started this podcast was because I wanted to have those conversations that I feel we don't have enough. I find that when I communicate with my girlfriends and we talk about the challenges we're facing as mums, it normalizes our experience and certainly makes me feel better. <laughs> if I if I know that they've also dealt with, you know, all these pooey nappies and tantrums and all 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 the things in between, I then sort of start thinking, oh yeah, I guess this is kind of normal then. So I, I but there's only so much time you've got to have those conversations, um, particularly when you're caught up being a mum and all of that. So that's where I think there's a massive power in podcasts because you can, you know, put your earphones in, listen to a podcast at a time that suits you. And so I thought, how about I just, you know, have these conversations that I was having with other mums, but maybe I'll bring in some experts as well in um, parenting experts, et cetera. And let's talk about all all the challenges and you know, learn from each other's stories and, and get some good tips along the way. And and also it means that the mums-to-be can also have a little bit more warning than I <laughs> felt I had. And so it's, yeah, normalising the experience for the current mums. It's giving a heads up to the mums-to-be. And it's also about building a bit of a community of, of like-minded people who, like myself, were potentially had kids later in, in their 30s and, and are now experiencing similar challenges. And why not, uh, you know, get together with these people, whether that's having, you know, sharing podcast episodes with each other or, you know, engaging in social media through the podcast or, and slowly sort of start building a bit of community around around this. And that's essentially how mum life came about. Oh, I love it. I'm s- I think, you know, all of the women listening who have been listening for the last, you know, 40 minutes or so, really appreciate how candid you've been with us and your journey and everything you've kind of been through. Mum life, it just especially for you, and I say this as your sister because you, before you were a mum, you really did have your own identity and life, which we've totally spoken about today. But I think that shift in identity is what has been so interesting to watch just obviously you go through and I'm excited for you to share that with and help educate the women out there. So my final question is how you actually finish every episode of the Mum Life podcast and that is how has motherhood changed you? So I mean, I started this conversation saying that prior to having children, work hard, play hard was essentially my mantra. I certainly now feel I've got more perspective on on both of those elements. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not able to live my life with such great intensity. I've realized now that it's it's not great on your health, but also when you have children to look after, it just gives it all perspective. And then all of a sudden you realize that is that thing at work really that important? You know, the things that would keep you up at night, I don't have time for that anymore. So you really start prioritizing the things that are important to you and gives you that perspective. So it's certainly, as I said, taken the air out of the tires on, on both of those aspects, work and play. And I feel, I feel more grounded. 
I also feel more present to life, to be honest. I feel like prior I was so busy with thinking about what's the next thing? What do I have to do? What, you know, where do I have to be? What are you? And I, I don't think I was really appreciating the small things. And now, you know, my kid cracks a smile or, you know, the two boys are wrestling on the floor with dad and you just think far out, like they're the moments, they're the moments that I just feel so grateful just to be alive in that moment. Like how special I, I would have whizzed straight past that prior to motherhood. Like I wouldn't have even seen those simple moments. So that's been a, that's been a big one for me. And I guess the final thing is just having, realizing the power in vulnerability. Prior to having children, I had that mask on. It was, you know, to the world, you know, I hoped that everything seems under control. And, um, but inside, you know, I I really had a lot of vulnerabilities. And now I, I feel like life's too short and, you know, be true to yourself. And certainly motherhood has just, and the experiences I had with prenatal depression and, and emotions going everywhere and the challenges in my relationship and all of that in between has just made me realize that life's too short and it's, you got to speak the truth and it's okay to be vulnerable. And in fact, that's what people connect to. So, you know, I couldn't have had this conversation with you prior to being a mum because I just, I don't think I could have gone there the experiences of motherhood have certainly enabled me to to grow as a person and be able to share in my my own vulnerability as well. Love it. Thank you so much. This has been so interesting. Go vulnerability. I'm personally so proud of you and we cannot wait for the rest of the series. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle, for taking part in this conversation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and give us five stars if you're feeling fancy. Want to be part of the Parenthood community? Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at Parenthood Pod. Now I'll let you get back to the organized chaos. Until next time.